1: Hi there, I'm Chelsea Jack and I'm a podcast host for New Books Network. Joining me today to talk about a book that I'm really excited about is Stephen Stoll, the author of Ramp Hollow The Ordeal of Appalachia. Before diving into the book, let me say a few words about my guest today. Stephen Stoll is a professor of history at Fordham University and he's written many books in addition to the one that we'll be discussing today. A couple of those include Larding the Lean Earth, Soil and Society in Nineteenth-Century America, The Great Delusion, and this one's got a tongue twister of a subtitle, A Mad Inventor, Death in the Tropics, and The Utopian Origins of Economic Growth. He's also written A Brief History of Environmentalism in the U.S. since 1945. But let's turn to Rampallo, The Ordeal of Appalachia, which is his most recent book, I'm really excited about this book for a couple reasons. First of all, this is a book about people who have lived close to their environments, as Stoll puts it. Stoll is specifically interested in American settler culture. He's looking at country people throughout the Atlantic world over the last 400 years. And in the preface, he clarifies by country people, he means settlers, peasants, campesinos, and smallholders, all of whom make their living by hunting, foraging, farming, gardening, and exchanging for the things they cannot grow or fashion themselves. The general word for them is agrarians. Though he discusses many places outside of the southern mountains, Stoll's exact setting is the area from southern Pennsylvania to southern West Virginia, or central Appalachia. In particular, he's interested in American settler culture and the agrarians in this region, and how it is these people have lost their land. As you'll hear us talk about in the interview, the book is also about capitalism and its outcomes, like environmental ruin and dispossession which occur all too commonly. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Stephen. Thank you very much. Let's begin with a traditional question on the podcast, which is, what led you here? How did you become interested in topics like agrarianism, land, and as you put it in the preface of your book, how people get kicked off of their land or dispossessed?
0: Well, I guess if you go all the way back, I'm from a very cementy suburb in Southern California, a place that even when I was young, I started to ask questions about what was here before. I had this sense, I think from my dad, because he grew up in the same town of Long Beach, California, that uh, we would go around and he would say, well, well, you know, there was a movie theater here, or this used to be an open field. And it was the fields that really got me. What were they doing in these fields? What was a field? And I just started to ask questions about it and found that where I lived at a certain point had been, um, I had grown alfalfa and other crops for, for dairying. And it just sort of put a hook in me that, um, that agriculture was once more pervasive. And when I drove other places in California, say up, uh, Interstate 5 in the Central Valley, I saw agriculture going on and it was simply foreign to me. I honestly think that my interest came from the fact that I was trying to understand something that seemed almost outrageous. I didn't understand where, where food came from or these relationships that seemed so different than the ones that I was confronted with in my life. And I just, I simply became fascinated by it. So at the very root of it all, uh, I this rather urban, suburban person became interested in agriculture because it, because it was foreign and because I wanted to understand. And uh, that actually has carried me through quite, quite a while. I don't think I'm going to write another book about farmers. I, it, it's enough for me at this point. <laughs> but I think that's really the beginning. And as far as dispossession, well, I had written books about kind of uh, upper class farmers, really in California and in uh, places like Pennsylvania and South Carolina during the early republic. And this region was a complete mystery to me. I don't really do the same thing twice. And dispossession is something that kind of goes back in my own family. And I wanted to follow it out in American history, without simply writing a book about American Indians, which, of course, is the most obvious way to write about dispossession mm-hmm. in North American history. But uh, an example in which I could also use American Indians that I write about this book, certainly, but to focus on uh, a specific instance having to do with a white settler, about in order to uh, heighten the process um, and to say something about dispossession and also capitalism. At the root of it, I really want to try to book about capitalism. And Appalachia was going to be an example, and it's still really just about half the book. In a sense, it is a book about capitalism more than a book about Appalachia. And the example grew to take over the entire subject of the book.
1: I see. So Appalachia became a case of something for you.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, for me it was, uh, it was enclosure in England and uh, I got some negative feedback about this with other historians I would offer this to at conferences saying, well, you know, not every place is England. We're tired of enclosure. There are other ways of dispossession like dispossession through the market which I certainly cover uh, in the book. Um, but I... I was also thinking about a more general reader and that even though enclosure in North America with American Indians or uh, among the white uh, farmers of Appalachia is not identical, it's not just the same as England, it can't possibly be. I still thought that British enclosure was a very useful way of understanding what happened. Like if you could understand that, then you could understand the variation that took place Uh, in the mountains or with American Indians.
1: Thanks for that. I would love to come back to that chapter, the one on enclosure, the Atlantic peasantry, um, and how those things might help us understand the Southern mountains better. But first, I thought we could just move through the book chronologically or in a linear fashion and work from the title through the chapters uh, to give readers a sort of roadmap. The title feels like a good place to begin. Ramp hollow. A ramp actually means an onion, right? Yeah, (laughs) it does. (laughs) Can I say more about that? I was going to say, can you talk about the significance of the title and how it functions as a reminder of other important ideas in the book?
0: So my wife said, this is a terrible title. Nobody knows what a ramp is and nobody knows what a hollow is. So what are you doing? And I still encounter people, even from Appalachia, uh, who uh, grew up in the cities and don't know what a ramp is. A ramp is, is not a, a, a flat platform that connects to unequal elevation. Uh, in this case, it is an onion. Sometimes it's also referred to as a bare onion. But one thing I love about the name is I actually wonder if ramp is not the ideal name for it. It's from the German name Rampen for, for a certain kind of onion. But you see, these spring onions, in fact, connect the season. You collect ramps in the woods in the springtime when your summer food stores are used up, but when your, your winter food stores are used up, but your summer crops have not yet uh, begun to grow or you, you can't harvest them. You've just planted your garden. So all of these forest foods, of which ramps is just one, actually do get you from one season to another, like a ramp. And I, the book, at the core of the book, you know, are the subsistence practices of these agrarian households in the mountains.
1: Mm.
0: And ramps are key to them. They're not a poverty food. It isn't people going out and scavenging, starving in the woods. It was a cherished food the season was looked forward to throughout the year. People love these onions and the other kinds of plants they collect. They have many recipes for them. And so it, to me, it kind of symbolized the whole thing. The fact that I was taken to a road outside of Morgantown that's called Grand Hollow just kind of made it perfect. And I thought, why don't I call the book that? I couldn't think of a better title. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really couldn't. And so I thought, I'm going to use this and I'm going to try to bring some meaning to it.
1: I think that's great. I uh, I'm glad I asked you that. Uh, the, I I you know diving into the other chapters. I'm I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna read something you wrote in the preface quickly, um, and then ask you to talk more about the structure of the book. But so in the preface, you write that as you began this, you set out to broaden and deepen the narrative of dispossession in the Southern mountains. Um, you read works of historians, anthropologists, literary scholars, and sociologists. And a quick note here, uh, for listeners who haven't become readers yet, the book really is interdisciplinary, uh, and engages writing from across many different disciplines. Um, and you, you write that you read corporate records, private correspondence, popular magazines, government reports and novels, and the result is episodic. Um, you write, my exact setting is southern Pennsylvania to southern West Virginia, but every chapter excavates a different stratum. Um, I would love to hear more about how you decided to structure the book and the historical dimensions for the project. Um, for listeners, can you talk about the different strata you chose to excavate in each chapter and then explain how you made those decisions?
0: Hmm. No one has ever asked me that before, Chelsea.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you.
0: I guess I haven't spoken to it. I'm not graduate students yet about it. No, that's a great question. I think, I think that one obvious answer is that it was driven by the sources. That my sources began to cluster around a northern story centered around uh, western Pennsylvania and just over the border into Morgantown, West Virginia, and a more southern story that was centered around the Kanawha River, uh, Charleston, and the, the, and the big uh, coal fields that emerged that were discovered down there. So geographically, that's where my sources began to... Cl- there were other things, too, of course, but that kind of worked, and so uh, I... That's one way I decided, hey, the Whiskey Rebellion took place in Appalachia.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The Whiskey Rebellion is right over, you know, the border of what we consider to be. We, people don't think of, historians don't think of Western Pennsylvania as the Southern Mountains. But that's ridiculous because it is. And so what if I looked at the Whiskey Rebellion in light of the subsequent history? How would it look different mm. to me? And, I'm, and then historians, as much as they've written about the Whiskey Rebellion, have not really written about it environmentally or seen it um, in terms of the subsequent industrial history. So that's how geographically it kind of took shape. I chose West Virginia, as a lot of historians do, for the very simple reason that a lot happened there. But all of its counties, just about all of its counties, lie in the southern mountains, as opposed to the counties of eastern Tennessee eastern Kentucky, right, northern Georgia, et cetera. It's always a certain number of counties, but really, statistically, you could almost consider the entire state. That does make it a lot easier. Right. Uh, And it has a kind of charisma to it in light of this history that's also attractive. So when it comes to the structure and, and the episodes, I I needed uh, a chapter that was about the Southern Mountains and what happened there. So people would ask me, what is the book about? And I started to say, it's about how Daniel Boone became Hillbilly. (laughs) How is it that we go from this uh, celebration of pioneer heroes, not just Boone, all the people who kind of rolled behind him, and then, depending on how you measure it, 30, 40 years later... We're talking about hillbillies. People who are being disparaged for their poverty, insulted, called all those names, primitive, backward, savage. How does that happen in such a short period of time? So that became the first chapter, as I needed to get into the story and say to the reader, there's something odd going on here. And there's there's a real poverty that actually set in, but in addition to that, there's this There are these two different stories, and one story of Boone, of heroism, of American Empire, all of a sudden becomes this other story of people who are stagnant and capable of change, holding back the very progress that Boone seemed to represent. So that was the first chapter. And can I do this? Should I just jump to the next chapter?
1: Yeah, sure. Can I ask you one specific Uh, question about the first chapter? I, you know, yeah. I'm really fascinated. Um, as you're talking, right, you're talking a lot about how Appalachia and the Southern Mountains have been represented and talked about, imagined. Um, and you, you know, in that chapter, you reflect on what a region is, um, and and how every region is based on a theory. Um, and what you offer something really interesting, which is that Appalachia as a region did not exist before the industrial invasion of those uplands during the 19th century. Um, I just wanted to put that on the table because this yeah. seemed like a, a core contention of that, of that first chapter.
0: Okay, yeah. And it's the difference between uh, defining a place geologically, as in the Appalachian mountain chain that goes from Georgia all the way up into Maine, Mount Katahdin in Maine is, is, is part of the Appalachian Mountains. Right. There's the uh, Appalachian Trail. But what's, about, what's that about? <laughs> uh, that is, that's geologic. That's, that's, uh, that's a mountain chain, a series of, of parallel mountain ridges. In fact, in certain places, it gets quite wide, and it includes the giant Shenandoah Valley. But when we talk about a region, I think we're talking about something that is historically constructed, because what is a region? It only has to do with people's experience. It usually doesn't have a, a great kind of geological coherence. Sometimes it does, like the Great Plains or the Sahara Desert. As an example, you could say those are regions, too, with a distinctive human history. But what I thought is that apology did not work like that, and that there were lots of geographers over the years who said, it doesn't really exist. If you want to talk about how people live, what they eat, the music they listen to, they were arguing: there's really not much that's distinctive about it. And yet, we know that there is such a place. So I decided it really is a history. It really is a certain kind of extractive history uh, that does make it different from the lowlands. So yeah, that is my contention, because I needed to define it, and I found that actually kind of interesting to do. It was more difficult than it actually seemed. Um, So yeah, I I had to, to do that, even though... You know, I don't really cling to it and make a very big deal about it, I think because it's more or less accepted.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for that clarification. I I definitely would love to move on to talk about your second chapter. You were about to do that before I asked for that uh, follow-up question. But um, in chapter two, you move on from just focusing on Appalachia, either representations of it or lived experiences of the region um, and its history, to talking about Um, capitalism, the Atlantic peasantry, and the enclosure movement in England. So we we zoom out as readers. Can you talk about that decision and why you felt like that was a necessary shift?
0: Uh, Some readers have not liked it. Yeah, some readers have not liked it, Uh, especially um, the the kind of non-academic readers I, I, it's almost like I and, and a lot of the things that I write, I sometimes write two introductions. There's kind of a narrative introduction, and then there's a more analytical introduction. And in fact, those two chapters are both they're both introductions. But some readers have not liked it; they've not really understood why there is this this deep dive, and it is isn't even that deep uh, into uh, English history and enclosure, and exactly exactly what it is. But I thought it was actually necessary. It's really why I set out to write the book in the first place, is to, is to understand that in light of North America. So I do that, but I really need to bring it back to, from the Atlantic peasantry to the ancestors, if you will, of the present population of Appalachia, and the Finns and the Swedes who came in the 17th century to North America, how they kind of, kind of closed that loop begin the more narrative portion of the book by their immigration, but I I needed to examine its historical taste so that I could then refer back to it and the reader would know everything that I was talking about, uh, and both how Appalachia, uh, how it forms parallels to British enclosure and how it was different from British enclosure. I felt like I needed to do that, but also in that second chapter, There is this idea of progress embedded in it also, the theory of stages, the idea that societies go from hunter to farmer to entrepreneur in distinct uh, historical evolutionary stages. Why that uh, came about and why it does not fit reality, but how it was applied, how it's always applied, even today, to agrarian peoples. And we know this from terms like they're living in the past, they're living in the stone age. They're not, they're living in the present and they could be extremely successful in what they're doing. Why is it that we see them as living in a past time when we know that's not possible? That's what I wanted to examine
1: also. I I was really struck by one line in that section where you say that farmers occupy an awkward position in the theory of state in theories of stages. This kind of evolution, Um, and I I think that's because of the ways they move in and out of different economies. If I understood some of your arguments correctly, Um, is that is is that what that awkwardness is about? It is that um,
0: that with previous stages of, say, uh, hunting and herding, these people can be completely transformed. Mm. And uh, a modern society, so I'm talking in the language of, say, the Scottish philosophers or someone from the World Bank, a modern society doesn't need farmers, doesn't need hunters, and it doesn't need herders. So they could be transformed, if you will, destroyed and repurposed. But modern society does need farmers. It needs them to be different kinds of farmers, but at a stage, it, they cannot disappear. They have to be transformed. Their mode of production has to be transformed. Mm-hmm. There must be farmers still. And so this is what was so confusing. When you get to farmers, you say, no, 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 you must exist, but you have to do it differently. Your task is to serve the burgeoning other sector of modernity, the manufacturing and the cities, et cetera. Um, and that's what made them different.
1: Thank you for clarifying that. That's really interesting. I, if we could shift to the third chapter, um, you already talked a little bit about this chapter um, on the Whiskey Rebellion, which I think you actually call the Rye Rebellion in the book. Um, and you have, you know, a great line that captured my attention at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, you write that Hamilton marched into the mountains to enforce the authority of federal law. Yet, in a larger sense, he marched as political economy personified, headed for confrontation with agrarian autonomy. Um, by referencing this history, what kind of confrontation are you trying to illustrate to readers?
0: It well, It's... Uh the, it was the hardest chapter to write. It, it was in some ways the first thing I started with. Um, and I, I really like it, and it's also uh, a challenge to explain. But the Whiskey Rebellion was uh, the response to a tax, the very first internal tax that was established by the United States, it was thought up, written, and recommended, advocated entirely by Alexander Hamilton with George Washington, uh, very much in favor. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted nothing to do with it, um, and uh, resigned from the administration in part because uh, he wanted nothing to do with it. And my argument is that it is not sufficient to understand the whiskey tax as simply raising revenue. We just need money. Right? The way that you would raise revenue is you would have a tariff. A tariff taxes other countries for bringing things in. It strengthens domestic manufacturers, uh, not with any uh, reference to what's happening today. They were very popular among some people and unpopular among others. But the thing is that a tariff does not tax your own people. But this is exactly what Hamilton wanted to do. And it was extremely controversial because he chose a specific group of people, the people in western Pennsylvania who made their own whiskey. So my argument, just to kind of get to the point and to summarize, is that Hamilton wanted to get these people to make more exchanges in money because they had to pay the tax in money. They couldn't barter for it. You can't pay a tax in whiskey or in any other commodity. But in that odd commodity that is currency. So he was coercing them into exchanges that produced money because he saw that as a way of moving them forward on that line in the theory of stages, which would make them dependent on money. And in his mind, therefore, fully part of the United States, which was always an economy for him as much as it was a polity. Mm. Did I answer your
1: question? You absolutely answered my question. And it's nice because connecting the idea of a theory of stages in the second chapter to how this was a manifestation of that kind of thinking uh, is really helpful to, to yep. hear explained. It, If I can, what, you know, we could continue going through each of the chapters, but I actually think it might be interesting to shift and talk about this text as an object um, and some of the unique features of the book that maybe I could uh, highlight in terms of what interested me. Um, And then maybe you could also talk about uh, some of the other features that maybe interested you or that you were most excited about. Um, For example, you include several maps, and they're folded into the fourth chapter, I believe, alongside photographs and reprinted paintings. Um, You have have lots of maps in here. There's a map of um, an Appalachian Regional Commission uh, representation of the region. There's a map of enclosing the commons in England from 1801. What were you hoping that this would add to the reading experience? um,
0: Yeah, the first map um, well, I mean, you're right. There's a lot of maps. There's, uh, you know, there's the map that you open up the book and it shows you where everything takes place. But the map that's right before the first chapter, which is a cadastral map, which I refer to as the Swan map, mm. um, which is a map of property. Uh, I put that in to show the contrast between the way in which speculators and industrialists looked at the landscape as simply a flat depiction of private property versus the way that people who lived there looked at the land, which was a very deep complex ecological system. But going on to the collected maps uh, in the, in the middle of the book. Yeah. um, Yeah. There's, there's the map of Appalachia from the Appalachian Regional Commission, which is the largest, uh, the largest depiction of the region that you can find because there's many different versions of what Appalachia is. Mm-hmm. But theirs, uh, because they want to include as many states as possible and therefore their governors in the Appalachian Regional Commission, actually have it reaching into New York, well into Ohio, uh, and also Alabama, even a corner of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. they have included as as Appalachia. I guess I just wanted to, to, honestly, it was the easiest map to include. It was free. (laughs) It was free. Um, It's a government document. Uh, I didn't want to spend time drawing different depictions and then kind of arguing them. I do that just briefly in the chapter. So I just said, here's what at least uh, one government group calls Appalachia. And then uh, with the, the map from Great Britain um, in from uh, 1801, that's um, that's another that's a very early cadastral map. That's like the very first cadastral maps came from from England. So you can draw the parallel between the Swan map and the British map and see that it's the same thing.
1: Another feature of the book I would love to hear about is Chapter Five. You call it an interlude. Um, And it is an interlude, I think, uh, relative to the other chapters, right? Because you explore in this one, uh, painting and writing, the depicted uh, moment of change uh, is what you say, and you comment on um, things ranging from romantic essayists like Henry David Thoreau to various kinds of paintings. So stylistically, how, how did you make the decision to include this chapter? Why did you think it was important as an interlude?
0: Well, I started to collect these other voices writing about and painting about dispossession. And I just wanted to increase it. You know, for those writing dissertations you know, and writing a book for the first time, when you're writing a book on a subject, you really have an opportunity. You, you basically make for yourself a platform and you can stand on that platform and you can say something. And if someone's going to pick it up, you get to tell them something important. If you, whatever you find, you're going to want to make that statement as broad as possible and take advantage of that moment. So I had all these other things, and I didn't want to just put them into an article. So what I decided to do was to include a chapter and say to the reader, look, I'm taking a break here. This has to do with the larger question of the book of dispossession in America, in North America. But it's not about the Southern Mountains, not exactly. So I'm going to broaden the whole subject by talking about these other voices. And if you want to skip it, you can skip it. In a narrative sense, it's not essential to the book. But if you want to see this in a larger frame of reference, and how lots of people were wringing their hands about what was happening during this period, which I think was like 1865 through about 1900, when there was so much dispossession happening, uh, then you're going to want to read it. And plus, it's fun to interpret these cultural items. Writing about painting is just really a kick. I, I love writing about painting. You can just, you know, you can just look at it and and think about it and say things. You can stretch yourself as a writer. And it was just fun. So I wanted to put that in, hoping that that would also kind of rub off. But
1: it's a pleasure. Yes,
0: it really is an interlude. What?
1: I said it's a pleasure to read. Oh, good. It is. It is. Thank you. I I, I did think it added to the book. Um, in In the sixth chapter, you return to more... Uh, to a tone and, and to, I guess, um, cases of things that fit with the previous ones before the interlude, um, I, I would just briefly love to talk about the captured garden idea. And if you could explain to readers what you mean by a captured garden in chapter six. So I
0: spent a lot of the book, at least well, all of chapter four and part of chapter three, explaining how it is that people lived in the mountains when they were autonomous and they did not depend on money. And key to that is a garden. A garden by itself is not a good way to live. A garden in combination with a rich ecological base and fields where you would grow, say, corn or rye is uh, actually an extremely robust way to live. But in the end, the mountain culture was stripped down to the garden. When the forest was removed by industrial logging, They didn't have that base anymore. They couldn't hunt. It was more difficult to collect ramps. And and here they were down just to the garden. My argument is that we think of industrial capitalism as eliminating all of these sources of subsistence when, in fact, that is hardly ever true. They capture certain forms of subsistence that they find advantageous to use. Why the garden? Because if a, if a family living in a coal town produces their own food, they can be paid a lower wage. They use their own labor and their time, not down in the mine, and labor like wives, daughters, young sons, grandparents, people whose labor is not captured by the wage, can be captured in the sense that they can produce their own food and therefore subsidize a wage that otherwise could not actually sustain them. So this is why such gardens existed all over the mountains, in other places. uh, how sharecropping, in fact, is another version of it. And we see it today, in fact, in China, where there are factories that grow food on their roof for much the same purpose, where workers produce food in the factory that is served um, for lunch in the factory. And uh, so that's why I call it the captured garden. It's consistent within the circuit of capital, having been captured in such a way that it now, instead of serving the purpose of autonomy in the hollow up on the ridge, now serves the purpose of the capitalist uh, in subsidizing a low wage. That's what I tried to capture.
1: That is super helpful uh, and a very eloquent explanation. I have uh, two more questions for you to just round out um, our discussion of um, the chapters and the conclusion of the book. Um, The first of the two going to the conclusion, uh, negotiated settlements, the fate of the commons and the commoners. Uh, A really unique feature of this chapter is that uh, you offer a, a draft of Policy, or perhaps what I think you call um, maybe a thought experiment, and, and that's called the Commons Communities Act. Um, and so I wanted to ask uh, this is a really unique decision for you to make as an author as well.
0: Uh, yeah, and I've <laughs> we saw it a number of times. Some readers in the mountains have, have liked it, uh, others have attacked it as. Socialist and communist, uh, which, if you read it, it really is not at, at all. Uh, what happened was, I didn't want to just end the book on a note of, of desperation uh, with coal moving out, incomes basically plummeting, environmental disaster everywhere, and, and um, reactionary politics popping up all over the place. So I started to make a list Well, what might a a post-cult Appalachia look like that would not have a savior corporation coming in and saving the day. It wouldn't have Intel or Apple swooping in to hire everybody, which in fact is really not very likely at all. So if we looked at it a different way from the point of view of an, uh, an agricultural historian, who knows the region? What would be another alternative version of people living satisfying lives? So I started making a list, and then I thought, it sort of sounds like what might be in uh, an act of Congress. So I wrote it in that form because it allows you kind of to discuss it even as you go along, whereas you know, it gives you all of these conditions, and then you get to kind of list all these planks that are supposed to add up to a vision of some public policy. So I thought, what the heck, I'll just do it. Yeah. And I field tested it among a number of people. I tried it out, changed some language. Um, you know, I had to make sure that the education was, tax money was going to public education and not to private school, uh, because that would be funneling it you know, away from the public. I had to make these, I had to be aware of all these things to the extent that I, that I could be. And then I just thought I would float it. You know, and I point out that there have been members of Congress, including Republicans, who have looked at a lot of abandoned coal land and said, maybe this could be given back to people. All that I'm doing is providing a mechanism for doing that, Uh, tax incentives and and other kinds of community structures that would enable people to do that and to do what many of them are doing anyway. They're hunting, they're fishing. And they're farming around their houses and planting gardens. Uh, I've seen it. So that was my thinking.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it is an inspiring section to read. Um, and I, I, especially, I especially appreciated, because you had spent the first part of the chapter talking about different kinds of environmental and community ruin, that had been the result of either um, accidents or um, intentional actions committed by corporations in places like West Virginia, whether we're talking about the Elk River spill or various kinds of um, abandonment. I especially appreciated um, the inclusion of a provision for an industrial abandonment uh, tax. Oh, uh, uh, yes there are some activists in the
0: mountains that have uh, traded this around in their discussion groups, but otherwise I I haven't really heard too much about it.
1: Yeah, I was curious what kind of feedback you had gotten, but... um, Not not too much, but
0: um, when I go to to West Virginia, which I have uh, twice now and once to Virginia, to speak about the book, I tend to get audiences of people who are more sympathetic to its overall argument and to these kinds of solutions. Frankly, I get kind of the lefties in the mountains who, who very, who, and the labor organizers uh, and labor activists. Uh, I spoke in Wheeling last week to to such a group, and they're incredibly inspiring. But what I have not gotten are people who would oppose this and stand up and challenge me. and. And we would talk about it in that way. I, I have not, um, I haven't had too much of that. So.
1: Interesting. Well, you know, this is a good segue actually to my last question for you. And, you know, I just want to thank you for all the time you've taken to talk to me today. Um, you know, the, thank book, you. the book has been out for um, almost a year now, right? It came out last November. mm mm-hmm. um, and so I'm I'm curious if you were going to now with almost a year of a year of having talked about the book, having it read by people, um, if you were going to flag something for readers now as they pick up the book, or talk about an unexpected reflection you've had this year. Um, what might you flag, or what what things uh, have surprised you over the course of the year?
0: You mean in different responses to the book and kind of the part of the book that seems like the most what like relevant or
1: yeah, another way to answer the question would be to flag what you think is maybe now most relevant for people to think about too.
0: A lot of reviewers focus on the last chapter. And I get a lot of questions about the Trump voter and about the 2016 election in the mountains. Mm. And of course, and of course. I did not write about that. And uh, even more hilariously, you know, one person asked me, how did you write this so quickly after the election? Because obviously it was written in response to the election and not 12 years of work on this book. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So, uh, yeah, I know. Like, I could whip it out in six months. Um, So that was all very funny. But I I have to admit, you know, to your uh, other historian readers, I, I don't always know what to say about what does it say about the Trump voter? Because I have to say, I'm a historian. I'm writing the deep story and background of this region, how it became impoverished, and therefore possibly how it led to uh, a certain kind of reactionary politics. But of course, a lot of my book, when I talk about politics, are people who are joined together in unions. Uh, and in fact, they're, they have a very different politics for most of this period than that that appeared say since the 1970s, which I'm not which I understand, but I didn't really write about it. So, um, so I, I guess the last chapter has gotten a lot of attention when it wasn't the the, the main thing or really my my favorite chapter um, at all. I am glad that I uh, I ended on uh, Africa. And I ended on examples of the same kind of dispossession today. The logic, is: I begin with, 17th century um, enclosure, and then a 19th century enclosure in the Southern Mountains. And then here's an attempted enclosure, an actual enclosure in Africa in the 21st century. I thought that made sense. But other readers have kind of ignored that. And they're more interested in, in the politics of the mountains and what I have to say about it which isn't much. So <laughs>
1: right.
0: well, that's happened.
1: It, it's interesting because there is, you know, you do reference the election, but that's definitely not, and by election I mean the 2016 presidential election, but that's definitely, this in no way is written like a manual for understanding the motivations of voters at that moment in history at all. Right,
0: so right. I'm surprised,
1: yeah. have, I'm surprised that's been a reaction, but also maybe, maybe not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, because, because in the title you reference Appalachian and now I think a lot of people have come to associate Appalachia with, um, this confusing moment in, um, the history of presidential elections. Anyway, that, you know, that was my last question for you. I'm thrilled that we had a chance to talk to you and really appreciate the time you've taken to discuss Rampalo with us. So thank you. Steven.
0: Thank you so much for, for asking me, Chelsea.
1: And thanks again to those who listened to my conversation with Stephen Stoll about his latest book, Hollow: The Ordeal of Appalachia. It should be coming out in paperback this coming November. Until next time, my name is Chelsea Jack, and thanks for listening to New Books Network.